Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. Uh, I am so happy today to have Jack Canfield, one of my heroes on the podcast. Jack, how are you doing? I'm fine, James. How are you? Good, good. Jack I understand uh, you're on this podcast for a lot of reasons, but one of them is, you know, your book, The Success Principles, is having its 10th anniversary edition after selling millions of copies. You've also sold about 500 million copies of, you know, the, your Chicken Soup for the Soul series. Uh, you, you also have all sorts of uh, books about people should, you know, publish and sell their own books, and you have your own business set up to help people do that. Uh, but I really want to talk about you first and then the success principles. But, but first, and I know I'm, this is a big intro. First, I just want to say when your initial book came out 10 years ago, it, it practically saved my life. I was going through a hard time. And this book, which was kind of like a collection of uh, inspirational stories and tactics from many authors and branches of life, was so incredibly useful to me. It was it was incredible. So I have to thank you for that. I really appreciate you writing that book. Well, you're very welcome. I'm glad to know that it helped you. It, it did. Now, now, 10th anniversary. Well, actually, before I get into the 10th anniversary edition, I want to know about you. Why did why did you get into the whole success thing? <laughs> I started out as a high school teacher in Chicago. I was. Uh, it was 1968, if you can go back that far. And I, was, I, was, I, was, I, was, I can go back that far because I was born in January 1968. Oh, very good. Very good. While you were being born, I was teaching high school. And uh, basically, I was in an all-black inner-city high school, and I was doing a great job. But I became more interested in my, why my kids weren't motivated to learn the way I was. I mean, I always wanted to learn to achieve. And a lot of these kids were gang members and growing up in poverty, and they just didn't have that motivation. So I met a man named W. Clement Stone, who was a friend of Napoleon Hill, who wrote Think and Grow Rich. And I took some workshops at his foundation and started applying these principles of success that I was learning in my classroom with my students. And they all got gung-ho. And so I, well, I, mean, what, I can, what principles specifically did they get gung-ho on? And, and again, these are like inner city kids. So they're, they're coming out of a very different environment than you probably grew up in and, and so on. What, what did you... What what touched them the most? Well, just having a conversation about what they wanted to be when they grew up. No one had ever asked them that, neither their parents nor the school system. And then looking at uh, basically what are the principles of how you get from where you are to where you want to be, because no one, the schools never taught that. They still don't for the most part. And so I started teaching things like goal setting, 
We now know that only one out of 10 graduates of high school has ever been taught how to set a goal, how to set it correctly in terms of being measurable in time and space. I started teaching them about the importance of taking action, the willingness to fail and learn from your failures, the willingness to ask for what you want, how to visualize your dreams, how to affirm, you know, use affirmations and visualization, what we now call the law of attraction, taught them how to manage their minds, how to not be afraid of rejection, how to recover from sadness or anger. There's a lot of anger in the ghetto. And so, you know, how can, how can they recover from anger given that many of them grow, grow up and I don't know this for sure, but many people grow up in broken families or abusive families. I'm sure many of the kids you had contact with had lots of troubles at home. How do, how do you start getting over the anger when your whole life was anger? Well, basically, anger is dramatized fear. It's basically we're upset that we're not getting what we want, that we don't have what we see on television, at least if you're living in the ghetto. And, you know, their parents, many of them were violent. They hate a lot of unsafe walking home from school, getting beat up, etc. And so basically two things. Number one, you have to realize that life is just the way it is. You know, like life's not unfair. It's just it's just so. So getting into kind of a place of accepting what is rather than thinking it should be different and then saying, okay, now that we accept the way it is, now we can work to make it different. And basically this idea that anger is dramatized fear, most people would rather be angry than feel their vulnerability, feel the pain, feel the hurt, feel the um, sadness, feel the you know sense of, um, of, of despair or resignation that, that sets in for people. So I would rather take someone who's angry, take that motivation and redirect it, than take someone who's given up and have to try to wake wake them up. But I learned a process from John Gray, who wrote Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, called the Total Truth Process. So if, if, if I'm angry at you, I'm angry because there's something I want I'm not getting. But underneath that, I feel hurt. There's sadness. There's There's pain. And that's harder for men especially to experience. So if I can go to the pain and the hurt, now I can go underneath to uh, what, what it is that I actually want. And then I can feel – I can also look at my – what's my responsibility for not having what I want? A lot of these kids weren't doing their homework. They weren't dreaming. They weren't uh, helping out their parents. So they were creating a lot of the problems they were having in life, you know, failing. And so once I realized that I'm not a total victim – you know, certainly it's harder if you grow up black in the inner city in Chicago. But, you know, I have plenty of students from that age who now are CEOs of companies, who've invented things, who are authors of books because they stay in touch with me because I was like, you know, quote, unquote, their favorite teacher. So I know that it doesn't matter what circumstance you find yourself in, you can actually work to let that go. And now today, we didn't have this back then, but today we have something called EFT or tapping where literally you can take any emotion, whether it's anger, grief, fear, and you can tap on nine acupuncture points on your head, your face, and under your arm and actually disappear any feeling like fear or anger in about five to 20 minutes. So we have technology now that no one should ever be stopped by anger or fear again because it just it's a waste of time. And a lot of these kids were afraid, but it wasn't macho to be afraid. So anger underneath that is hurt. Underneath that is fear. Underneath that is my responsibility for what I'm doing to create, promote, or allow it to continue. Underneath that's the unexpressed I want. Underneath that is love and forgiveness. So, so, so you 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 were dealing with these students, and you were seeing this reaction that was coming out of them. 
What then inspired you to say, hey, I'm going to kind of distill what I've been learning here and, you know, make my first book and, and get it out there? Well, I was actually a graduate student at the University of Massachusetts. I taught for two years in Chicago. I was then hired by a, a, a private education uh, institute that was training people who dropped out of school, but they had a government contract. And so they hired me there. And then I decided I wanted to go back to school and get a doctorate. So I was at University of Massachusetts when I wrote my first book called 100 Ways to Enhance Self-Concept in the Classroom. And the reason I wrote it was all these things I was learning and doing, nobody was doing. All the people in the graduate school, the professors, didn't even know this stuff. So as one person said, it was kind of like being a professor at a school of agriculture. You go driving out in the countryside, you see some errant farmer growing tomatoes 10 times larger than yours. So W. Clement Stone and all the people working at the foundation, we were doing things that no one else was doing and applying these principles that, you know, he'd learned from Napoleon Hill and other places. And so I realized when I got to graduate school, I knew more than a lot of the professors. So I decided to put it in a book. And, uh, you know, a, a lot of your stories in the both the Chicken Soup series and the success uh, uh, principles are very inspirational. Like, and I'm wondering, like, particularly for the Chicken Soup series, how did you get all these inspirational stories? This was, your, this was one of your early books. Uh, right. I mean, 500 million books came after that. But uh, where did you co start collecting these stories? Well, what happened was in, well, when I was teaching high school again, I noticed whenever I was talking about historical concepts or the four causes of the Civil War, my students were just glassy-eyed, looking out the window, falling asleep. But as soon as I would tell a story, even if it was about Abraham Lincoln, but it was a real personal story, or I started bringing in stories of people from the ghetto who'd made it. There's Ebony and Jet magazine are the two magazines most African-Americans read. So I started clipping stories and bringing them in and reading them to them to make them realize they didn't have to stay stuck in the ghetto. And so I started, when I started training teachers, which I did later, then I was using stories about my successes in the classroom. So I realized stories were really powerful. So I started collecting stories. Every, every book I ever read where there was an inspirational story, I would Xerox it. If there was a story in Parade Magazine or in People Magazine of someone overcoming some obstacle, there's almost always one every week in People. I would clip it out. So by the time I wrote Chicken Soup for the Soul, I had about 85 really killer stories I was using. And I decided one day when – this is what happened – I was doing workshops all over the world, and people, this one three-week period, it was like, like God was knocking on my head saying, hey, put these books in the story, or these stories in the book. So people would come up to me and say, that story about the puppy you told, is that in the book anywhere? That story about the Girl Scout who sold 3,000 boxes of Girl Scout cookies, is that in the book anywhere? My daughter needs to read it. So this was happening day after day after day. So on a plane flight from Boston to L.A., I wrote down every story I knew, you know, the Bobsy story, the fireman story. They didn't have titles for them. And I had about 79 stories. So I said, there's enough for a book. I'm going to write two stories a week. And at the end of the year, I'll have 104 stories. And that'll make a book. And that's really what happened to become the first Chicken Soup book. And then at the end of that book, and I recommend this to all authors, at the end of the book, I said, if you have a story, send it in. Maybe we'll do a sequel. Or if you're writing a self-help book, you know, if, if you use these principles and they transform your life, send me your story. Like right now, I'm editing a book called Living the Success Principles. It's going to be 100 stories of people who've used the principles in the book and have transformed their lives. So it'll be an inspirational book again. But the reason I wrote the success principles is because, you know, chicken soup stories were inspiring people all over the place. 
but they weren't giving them the tools they needed. They weren't giving them the practical step-by-step -step activities to get from where you are to where you want to be, whether it's goal setting or you know, it's easy to say, forgive someone. How do you do that? Easy, like you said, how do you get over your anger? How do you turn your inner critic into an inner coach? How do you set goals? How do you visualize if when you close your eyes, you don't see anything? Is that, is that still visualization? So we really, I, I sat down and I spent 18 months writing this book, which I wanted to be my opus magnus, my, all my best stuff in one book. And, and we pulled it off. And, and now that the 10th anniversary is out, you obviously have all new stories of people who benefited from this. And I see a lot of new stories in here, um, you know, because I've, I've now read the 10-year the anniversary edition. What would you say are the main differences between the, the two editions? Well, the first edition had 64 principles, about 440 pages. This book is about 600 pages. So we've added over 100 pages of new material. And we've also uh, updated all of the uh, resources, all of the stories are new. I think the, there's three, three new sections in the book. There's a chapter on leadership. We believe everyone should be a leader. And you don't have to be like a, the manager of a company or a CEO to be a leader. Second thing, we added a chapter on networking. Uh, Ivan Meisner, who runs Business Network International, has 6,500 chapters around the world. It's worth about $300 million. He wrote a really wonderful chapter for me. It's the only guest chapter I have uh, where he talks about how to be a networker where you go from visibility to credibility to profitability. Most people, when they're networking, are always just handing out business cards saying, refer people to me or buy my whatever. And you have to build a relationship over time. And he tells people how to do that. And then finally, we have a new section on success in the digital age. So, you know, 10, 12 years ago, most of us didn't know as much about LinkedIn and Facebook and YouTube channels and how to have a social branding and online affiliate marketing and uh, crowdsourcing, crowdfunding. So we have a whole section on how to use that in today's success world. But most importantly, and you refer to it, is that you know 90% of the stories now that illustrate the principles in the first book, they were people like Donald Trump and you know Bill Gates and, and, and Stephen Jobs, people that you could look up to and go, wow, they're amazing. But the problem was most ordinary people couldn't relate to that. So the stories today are all stories about average, normal people who read the first book, applied the principles, and as a result of that, have had amazing transformations. My favorite story, and you probably remember it because it's in the beginning of the book, is a guy named John Caleb who lived over in, uh, in Manila in the Philippines. I was over there doing a workshop, and uh, the night before the workshop, I did a book signing in a mall. And uh, John came and asked if he could interview me for the local Manila newspaper, and I said, sure. So he finishes the interview. I said to him, John, that may be the best interview I've ever had. That was really fun. You were great. It was fascinating. You asked very different questions. I really enjoyed it. How long have you been doing this? He said, you're my first interview. <laughs> I said, get out of here. How is that possible? Turns out he had been a restaurant owner with a friend. They got into a big squabble and screwed up the restaurant and went bankrupt. And he was couch surfing, sleeping on other people's couches because he couldn't afford to pay rent. He had to sell his car, so he had no longer had a car. I asked him, John, how much money do you have? He said, Jack, my total net worth in cash is $3.28 in my pocket. So I gave him $20 so he could buy dinner. I bought him a book from the bookstore because I didn't even have any of my own to give him, so I had to pay for a book to give to him. And I said, read this book. If you read this book, I promise you, your life will transform. 
So I come back to Manila two years later to do a workshop, and John walks in. He's wearing a blue blazer with a gold emblem on the, the coat pocket. He's got 10 guys walking behind him, all with the same emblem on their polo shirts, like an entourage. He's wearing gold Doc Martin shoes. He's just looking really good. Gold said, shoes. Well, I say what? Gold shoes. Gold shoes, yeah. Doc Martens, really cool shoes. My son loves them. And he's got gold shoes. On. So he's, he's become known as the, the, the money magnet in, in Australia. And I said, you look like the guy who interviewed me two years ago. He said, I am. I said, what happened? You look different. He said, I said to myself, this guy is successful. He's a multimillionaire. He's happy. He looks healthy. He's fit. He's got all these books and he's written, traveled all around the world, been in 50 countries. I'm going to do everything in this book for one year. And if it doesn't work, I'll have wasted a year. But if it does, maybe I'll be as successful as Jack. Well, it turned out, he, after he read the book the first time, he decided what he wanted to be he was a, a motivational speaker. He's now the number one motivational speaker in the Philippines. That year when I came back, he had two homes, one on the beach, one downtown in, in Manila. He had a radio show and a TV show. He had a book that was coming out. He was filling seminars with six to 800 people wow. almost four days a week all around the, the Indonesia and the Philippines. And he was super, super successful. And he said, I owe it all to your book. I did everything. He said, I, don't, I think he might be the only person on the planet who did every single thing in the book. But as I say from his story, if you're willing to work the principles, the principles always work. Well, you know, and I, and I want to dive into some of the principles, but I want to ask you first. When do you think you were in a moment of despair or depression or anxiety where you wake up in the morning and you just feel like, gosh, I know I should be following my own advice, but it's really hard today. Were you ever in a position like that? Sure, sure. I think anyone who's ever honest with you will tell you the same thing. I got divorced about 15 years ago. And uh, I, I'm the one who initiated a divorce. I just wasn't happy anymore. And we did all you know, two years of couples therapy and all the normal things you try to do, but just wasn't working out. I felt like I was living in a black and white movie. And when I would leave the house, everything would turn to color. So I realized something was totally wrong. But when, when I got divorced, my wife ended up getting this really killer lawyer. And she ended up getting all the cash we had, which was about $8 million at the time. I got to keep my company. I had to fight to keep my house. And I really felt like I was screwed. And I just, I, I went into a, a funky depression for about, I don't know, a month or two. And um, I was just angry. I was upset. I was, I was wearing my shirts two and three days in a row because I couldn't afford the dry cleaning. I was trying to figure out how do I build back my, my wealth because I liked having, you know, $8 million in the bank, sure. knowing that it was making interest and I was not having to work that hard. But it turned out that it was actually a blessing. Because it was out of that period of time that I wrote the success principles. I decided to need to rebuild my image, if you will, in terms of, you know, the chicken soup thing. It was playing itself out. And I wanted to do something new and different. And so I, I was, in a sense, forced to write this book to rebrand myself as America's number one success coach, which I've become. And uh, it was a blessing. But it took me about... I would say two months and then one morning I woke up and I said, you know, you teach people not to feel this way. So go listen to one of your cassette albums or something and figure this out. So I did. I, I listened to a couple of my own CDs. I started reading my own books again. And within a couple of weeks, I got out of it. You know, I forgave my wife. I forgave the lawyer. I realized that it was a blessing in disguise and I got to work. But no, I, I think it's normal. Uh, we all get tripped up, but we need our friends. We need books around us. We need podcasts like yours to constantly remind us that we don't have to live in that state. 
You know, and I, I think you bring up a couple of interesting points there. One is, 15 years ago, uh, you, you said this divorce was, I imagine you were, you know, you were 55 years old, and a lot of people, I, I get emails all the time, and I'm sure you get these emails as well, uh, oh, um, I'm 27 years old, I'm 30 years old, and I haven't figured out my purpose in life, I, I feel like it's too late for me, but it's never really... There's no such thing as too late, and and you prove that there in that story, and there, there's many other stories like that where, you know, that that's a fifty five is is fifty five years young. No, fifty five is not old at all. I mean, especially when you get to be seventy, you realize that. But the uh, I'll tell you a quick story that's in the book. It's about a woman named Helen Klein who was a nurse. She was smoking. She was obese. She was out of weight. You know, out of out of, out of uh, she wasn't fit anymore, out of shape, and so. Her husband came to her and said, I'm thinking of running a 10K race. It's about six miles. He said, would you like to train with me? She said, sure. So their backyard was about the size of a basketball court. So she said, let's run laps around the backyard. Well, after one lap, she fell on the ground wheezing. She thought she was going to die. And then she was so disgusted with herself. She said, I'm going to run, walk, or crawl an extra lap every day. Well, after a couple of months, you know, she's doing like 60 laps around the backyard. Then she ventures out onto the street. She starts going a block further every day. And now she's running, you know, 6, 10, 15 miles. And to make a long story short, at the end of that year, she'd run three marathons. By the time she was 65, she had run about 15 or 20 ultra marathons, like 75 miles, 50 miles, 100 miles. She ran across the Sahara Desert when wow. she was at 65. She, is the, she has the record for the fastest time in the Ironman triathlon for a woman. And when I met her, she was 83 years old. She held the record for a person over 80 running a marathon. She'd run it in four hours and 10 minutes and uh, you know, started at 55. And found a whole new life for herself. People, you know, so many of my friends retire at 55 or 60. And now one of my friends, Gay Hendricks, uh, retired. He's making more money now than he did when he retired because he started doing what he really loved. He's written three novels and he's uh, written two movie scripts, starred in one of his own movies. And he's made some really good investments and has been very, very successful. So he's having more fun now than he ever had. He's very busy. So basically, I always say, go for the thing that brings you the greatest joy. And you can make that choice at any time in your life. Well, I, I have a story for you, and I'm sure you know this story already. But there was a guy uh, running a gas station, 65 years old, had tried everything. He had been a truck driver, fireman, gas station owner. Nothing had really worked out, but he cooked uh, chicken every day at his gas station. And so many people loved it. And again, this guy's 65 years old. So many people loved it. Uh, Colonel Sanders created Kentucky Fried Chicken after that at the age of 65. So, Yeah, what a lot of people don't know, I'm sure you do, is that uh, once he created that great chicken recipe and realized that he had something, he decided to sell it to a restaurant and just get a franchise fee for it. And he, he got 1,001 rejections before he finally found someone that bought the recipe and created the actual Kentucky Fried Chicken franchise. Kentucky Fried Chicken is one of my clients. I speak to their franchise owners on a regular basis. And um, that's an amazing story. Not only was he old, he persevered through a hundred, or 1,001 rejections, just like with Chicken Soup for the Soul. Well, that book was rejected by 144 publishers before we found a publisher. Well, I was going to ask you about that because you, you, you tell that story. So, so not only were you were rejected by publishers, but then you were looking at all sorts of ways to distribute. And you would cold call and people would hang up on you. 
How do you that, persevere past that? Well, you know, you have to, if you find a thing you love, kind of think about this. You know, if you're teaching your son to walk, when would you give up? The answer is never. If, you, if your kid had a terminal illness and you're looking for a solution, when would you give up? And you would keep on going until either he, you found a solution or he died. So when you find your passion, the thing you really care about, what happens is you become kind of invincible. You know, we would have self-published the book if we had to, but it took us 18 months to find a publisher. And when the book finally came out, as you animated, it took us another 18 months before we made our bestseller list. Most people come out with a book and they, they work on it for two or three months. If it doesn't hit a bestseller list, they quit. And so we hit our first bestseller list. I think about 16 months into it, we're number 15 on the Wall Street, not Wall Street, but the Washington Post. And slowly, over a period of months, climbed up to number one on the New York Times, and then stayed there for three years. So, it's it you know, success is something you do over time. You persevere in the face of obstacles. And I think, James, what happens is the universe actually tests us. How committed are you to this? We're going to throw a lot of obstacles in your path. If you manage to get by them, then you're going to have great success. If you give up too soon, you won't. You know, and this leads to, and I'm going to skip around on some of the principles and the, and the success principles, but this lead, leads into, I believe it's the chapter on uh, leaning into it, where sometimes success is horizontal from what you thought. Like a lot of times people say, okay, I have this goal. But, you know, goals are sort of, the future is unpredictable. And sometimes I, like, you know, I, I'm not going to be like a professional basketball player I'm 47 years old and five foot nine, so I'm not going to be a professional basketball player. But if I love basketball, maybe there's lots of other things I can do related to that. And you know, you talk a bit about that, how how you have to kind of be flexible on what that goal and passion is. Well, it's true. I have a story in the book about Pat Williams, who is the current uh, vice president of the Orlando Magic basketball team. He started out wanting to be a professional baseball player and uh, actually was on the Philadelphia Phillies uh, farm team for a couple of years. He just wasn't good enough. But what happened was once he got in that arena of sports, he found out that he loved to write about it. He loved to uh, did some sports casting. He realized that he just loved sports. And even though he couldn't be a professional ball player, he finally worked his way into management and over a number of years worked his way up from just being low-level assistant coach and manager up to being the vice president of the Orlando Magic basketball team. Totally different sport than he started out in. But if you get – you know. My, the president of my company was flying back from uh, Atlantis, that uh, resort down in the Bahamas, with her son, who's 20 years old, he's in college, and wants to be in the, uh, a coach. And sitting next to her was an ESPN uh, producer. And she said, oh, my God, my kid wants to be in sports. Uh, let me introduce you to him. So he starts sitting there talking to the kid get off the plane and says, hey, tomorrow we're going to be you know, filming, I don't know, the, the Orange County Ducks or whatever, the hockey team. If your kid wants to come, he can come be in the booth with me. So he goes and be in the booth with him. And now he's getting mentored by a guy who's already an ESPN sportscaster, producer. And he said, he said your son knows more about sports than anyone I know. And uh, we're going to find a place for him. So, you know, he thought he was going to be a basketball coach. Now he's probably going to work for ESPN, but he's in the field he loves. So you just have to be constantly out there talking about what you want and believing in it and never giving up. And then the opportunity will happen. So let's say and, – and now we're getting to, to some of your earlier principles in here, the, uh, the decide what you want chapter. 
let's say you can't decide what you want. Is that going to be – first of all, does everybody have something that they want but they might not know it? And second of all, let's say somebody just wants to – you know, be happy and not really pursue any goal. Are they like left out of the happiness arena? Like what happens then? Well, being happy is a goal. So they're not outside the goal arena. They just have a different goal. Um, and I think having a goal for how you'd like to feel is really important uh, because almost everything we do is because we think it's going to make us happy, whether it's playing baseball or being a rock star or being a speaker. The reason we pursue it is we think it's going to make us feel good. I think you love to do podcasts and teach and so forth. So do I. So, you know, we found something we enjoy. So almost anyone I've ever worked with can find out what it is they're meant to do simply by doing something we call a joy review. Look back over your life and ask yourself, when was I happiest? Uh, the story in the book about a young woman who was at Ohio State University, she loved animals. Everyone said, you should be a veterinarian. So she's going to school and she's miserable. She studied biochemistry and biology and physiology and anatomy and she hated it because she loved animals, but she hated science. So basically she sat down one day, it was raining out, and she said, I'm going to spend the day figuring out when was I happy because i got to find out what's going to make me happy. And she remembered back over her life and the time she was happiest is when she was leading people. She was a student government leader in high school. She was a Girl Scout leader. She was leading groups, uh, you know, when they brought leadership uh, conferences to Ohio State University, she would always be one of the chaperones and the docents. And so she said, I love leadership. So she went to Ohio State and she said, I want to get a degree in leadership. They said, we don't have one. She said, well, can we create one? Like, I'll take communication courses, psychology courses, persuasion courses. They said, sure. So she got the first degree ever from Ohio State in leadership. At the age of 26, she was running leadership seminars at the Pentagon for colonels and majors and captains who really didn't understand the current level of what it takes to be a great leader. Now she, she won the Miss Virginia contest, and with her prize money, she set up a leadership uh, foundation for girls. So she makes her living now traveling around the country, running leadership trainings, empowering young women in college and high school. So if you look back over your life, find out when was I happiest and then how could I make a living doing that? One of my friends is, loves to surf. And she said, well, how the hell can I make a living surfing? Well, what she does is she takes uh, women who are uh, high-level, you know, C-suite entrepreneurs and, and, and uh, corporate leaders, and she puts them in a – she teaches them how to surf. And what we find is how you do anything is how you do everything. So basically, when they get on the board, if they go too far forward too fast, they do the same thing in their business. If they hold back too much, they're doing the same thing in their business. If they're, if they're not catching the wave, it means they're not seeing the trends coming, and the trend blows over them before they can catch the wave. So they're learning about their leadership styles – in a surfing class, she gets to be in a bikini all day long in Hawaii, charging people $10,000 a week to come work with her from these big companies like Exxon and Arco and so forth. So anything you love doing, you can find a way to monetize it. I love that because, again, it's this idea that having like a single goal is almost is almost self-sabotaging because it's, it's too easy to fail. But – if you broaden it and broaden it and broaden it and make and and have like like your friend who wanted to be a basketball coach but ends up knowing so much about sports he has an opportunity to work with ESPN this is kind of like this umbrella a broader umbrella for a passion rather than a single goal and that seems easier that seems kinder to yourself on the path to happiness 
Yeah, I think I think you know if you get a sense of what arena you want to play in. I mean, I play in the arena of human potential and self development, success. But I do a lot of different things. You know, the chicken soup for the soul books I did for fifteen years. All of a sudden, it lost its luster. I got tired of doing it. Stories that should have been inspiring me weren't inspiring me anymore. And the same thing's true with other aspects. I was a high school teacher. It started to be too small a class for me. I wanted to teach more people. I wanted to teach adults. I was training trainers for education and. All of a sudden, I wanted to be in the business world because I realized most people that were really making significant changes quickly were in the corporate world, not in education. So I keep shifting around, but it's all still in the arena of education, transformation, upliftment, inspiration, whether it's doing a TV show. I mean, I was asked by Fox Television to do a TV show. Uh, I decided not to do it because I didn't want to be tied down 22 weeks out of the year. I like the variety of my life where I can travel and do other kinds of things, put on seminars when I want to. But any of those arenas are within my you know, scope of what, what makes me happy. But I, there's nothing wrong with setting a goal. I mean, if you set a goal to be a basketball player, uh, you'll keep going until that pans out or something, like you said, something comes off on the side at a 90-degree angle, like ESPN sports casting or perhaps being a, a, a you know sports agent, whatever it might be, you're still in the arena you love. A friend of mine thought he wanted to be a restaurant owner. You mentioned the chapter, just lean into it. So I said to Jacob, I said, Jacob, why don't you go work in a restaurant? You love to cook. You throw these great dinner parties. But my grandfather was in the restaurant business. That's a pretty tough business. So he went and worked in a restaurant for two months. And he hated it. It's like you got to be there at six thirty in the morning. The food's coming in. You got to inventory everything. Your chefs get sick, or they they, they come in drunk. Uh, you know, it, it was a daily grind, seven days a week. And he went, I don't think I want to do that. I think I just want to throw big dinner parties. Maybe I'll do some catering occasionally. So you lean into it, and you discover, hey, that's not as cool as I thought it was. Well, and you know, um, what you have you have one chapter, success leaves clues, which is related to all this. Is that you know, again, we sometimes we don't always perceive our best interests right now. But if you have kind of this general direction you're going and you apply yourself, you sometimes see clues put, pointing you to other directions where you feel that fire a little bit more or it points you in the right direction. No, it's true. I mean, I started out as a high school teacher and, and realized very quickly I just wanted to work in a bigger arena. But if I hadn't been in that classroom, I never would have learned that. So basically, one thing kind of leads you to another thing, leads you to another thing. I think it was Stephen Jobs in one of his commencement speeches, I think it was at Stanford, said, you know, life is a connect-the-dots game. He said the problem is you won't see the dots until you look back. And then it'll all make sense. You know, I mean, he studied calligraphy when he was in college, didn't realize that later he would be the first guy to introduce optional fonts in the computer, giving us all these choices of what fonts we want to use because he thought the stuff that got printed should look pretty. He never would have had that if he hadn't taken that calligraphy class when he was in college. So he said, as I look back, Everything makes sense now. Everything I learned was part of what I needed to do to pursue my ultimate path. So, you know, I, I always tell people, you have an inborn guidance system called joy. If you just keep exploring the things that bring you joy, that expand you, that make you feel alive, that you can't wait to get up in the morning and do, if you just keep following that, you'll be guided to do that which you need to do to fulfill your life purpose. Because I believe that each of us has an ultimate purpose. We don't ultimately see it immediately. But as you look back over your life, you realize it. And if you follow your joy and do the things that you really enjoy, eventually you'll realize, oh, that's my purpose. You know, Steve Jobs is a great example because let's take um, the two things you mentioned, calligraphy and then computers. At best, he was 
mediocre at both. Okay, he took one semester of calligraphy, and with computers, Steve Wozniak was kind of like at least the hardware genius behind the original Apple computers. But Steve Jobs took the combination of these two things that he was that he loved and he was interested in, and he became the master, the best in the world at the intersection. And I thought that was very valuable. Exactly, exactly, very true. You know, it's it's true for me too. You know, I I was able to take my love for writing and my love for stories and put it together with my love for transforming lives. And so you never know. You know, I I've studied so many things along the way. You know, everything from. Uh, Zen Buddhism meditation techniques to EFT, neuro-linguistic programming, Byron Katie's work, you know, whatever. And you never know what combination they're going to come into. But all of us, you know, people in your generation and now some of the younger people coming along in their 20s and 30s, they'll take my stuff and your stuff and combine them in a new way that no one ever did before. And someone will take their stuff and someone else's stuff, combine them in a new way that no one's ever done before. That's what's fun about the creative process. You know, um, you talk a bit about mentors, and, and, and you also refer in your own stories, like when you were putting together, you know, your first books and then the success principles, how you got advice from a lot of these great, well-known authors in the inspirational space and the self-help space. What's what's the role of mentors for someone, and, and how does, you know, a typical question I guess I, I, I get is, how does one find a mentor? What's the best technique for finding your mentors? Well, basically, it's simply find someone who's already done what you want to do and, uh, and, and, and get a list of a couple people, hopefully. And then you approach them and you say, look, um, you inspire me. I want to grow up and do what you're doing. Would you be willing to give me 10 minutes every month just to talk and ask you a few questions on the phone? So you want to make a very small request. Those small requests turn into longer conversations. I had a guy at the Harvard Business School call me up and say, you know, your books have changed my life, and I'm teaching at the Harvard Business School, and I would like to uh, have you be my mentor. I said, I don't have a lot of time. He said, well, would you give me 10 minutes every month? And I said, sure. So, you know, the first couple of months was 10 minutes. Then it was a half hour. Then it was an hour. Then when I went to Boston, I spent Now he lives days. with you. What? Say again? Now he lives with you. Yeah, no, he doesn't, <laughs> but, but close. And so the reality is that people like you, uh, they're going to be willing to spend more time with you. So start with something really small. Uh, and then what you also want to do is, in any way you can, give something back to your mentor. You know, maybe you find an article you think might be useful for them or you want to introduce them to somebody or uh, some opportunity they might be interested in. So, you know, you've got something going both ways. And the other thing is whatever your mentor suggests you do, do it. It doesn't mean you have to do it forever, but at least try it on and report back to them what happened because they don't want to keep giving you advice if you don't use it. As far as finding a mentor, um, you know, just read books, look at the uh, people that are successful. I'll give you an example. I was down in Texas getting my makeup put on for a uh, TV show in the morning I was doing, and the person was a makeup artist. I said, what's your dream? I always ask people that. And she said, I want to own my own salon someday. I said, what are you doing to make that happen? She said, nothing. I said, that's a really bad strategy. And she said, well, I don't know what to do to own my own salon. I said, I have a radical idea for you. Why don't you find someone who owns their own salon and ask them how they did it? See if they'll help you create your own. And she said, wow, that's an amazing idea. So she went out and talked to a couple of salon owners. One said, you know, take me to lunch and I'll be glad to talk to you about what I did. And so that's what she did. And now she owns her own salon. But, you know, 
Tony Robbins once said, there's hardly anything that you want to do that someone else hasn't already done. So just find out how they did it. Now, sometimes you can hang out with them as a mentor. Sometimes you're going to read their book. Sometimes you'll take their seminar when they're teaching you about real estate investing or whatever it might be. But, you know, success leaves clues means that the people that have already done this are telling you how to do it or they're willing to tell you how to do it. You know, and then and then you go one step further where it's not just mentors, but your, your colleagues who are all interested in success, you could, you could kind of mastermind your way to success. You put together your group of, of, you know, people who think similar to you but might have different goals or passions, but you can each kind of hold each other accountable. Yes. You know, there's, there's, when people ask me what are the two most powerful techniques in your book, one is meditation and the other is mastermind groups. Now, I've been in a mastermind group, you know, not always the same one, but for over 40 years, I've always been in a mastermind group. And, you know, five to six people who all have the goal of being super successful. And people either, it can either be in the same business, like all authors who share their techniques and support each other with new ideas and, and brainstorm with each other and, and, and give advice and so forth. Or it can be people from different professions. Sometimes that's even more, uh, juicy because you're getting perspectives that normally you don't have in your own profession or business. So I've been in mastermind groups with world-class photographers, uh, internet marketing specialists, financial planners. Uh, one group I was in, the editor of Playboy Magazine was in there because we wanted to put a magazine together. So uh, basically, five to six people. And you want people that are performing at a little bit of a higher level than you are. And a lot of times people say, well, why would they want to be with me? And the reason is you put the group together. So in my book, I talk about Kabir Khan. Kabir is a young man living in Malaysia. And when I was in Kuala Lumpur, he actually sat in the lobby of the, my hotel for six hours waiting for me to come down. And then we actually, he came up to me and said, I've been waiting for six hours. Can I meet you for 10 minutes? I said, sure. We ended up having lunch together that day. And uh, he started the mastermind group. He's 26 now. And he started a mastermind group with a billionaire. He approached this billionaire and said, I want to be like you when I grow up. Would you be willing to join a group with me if we can put together five other people that you think would be fascinating? And I'll pick up one or two. You pick a couple. And so he got a group together with this billionaire who then later uh, paid for his uh, education to come to the United States and study magic. He's now one of the top magicians in Asia. Wow. And, and this is the best part. Uh, this billionaire, when the, when the uh, Patronus Center went up, which is the tallest building in Malaysia, he put a, a, a revolving restaurant at the top of that center and asked Kabir to be his partner because they'd become so close in a mastermind group. So there's this 26-year-old kid who's a partner in a restaurant like Windows on the World was at the top of the World Trade Center, and all because he reached out and said, hey, would you like to be in a mastermind group with me? And, you know, again, all of, all of these success principles are sort of connected, I feel, because this, this reminds me of another one you have called the, the Rule of Five. And this is, this is also related to the woman you were giving advice to about opening up her own salon. Uh, and I, 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 for me personally, I thought this was one of the most powerful ideas in the book, which is that anything you're interested in kind of take five whacks at that tree per day, and you're going to eventually knock that tree down. Yeah, that, that, that principle is really one of the most powerful ones, as you said. And it came because when our first uh, chicken soup book came out, we went to the psychic and we said, we are so committed to having this be a success. We're wondering if we could get any advice, you know, from this higher consciousness realm about how to do it. And he said, it would be as if you would go to a tree with an axe. And every day you would take five whacks at the tree with the axe. Eventually, even the tallest redwood tree would have to fall down. 
So we turned that into the rule of five. We applied it in our own work. And every day we would do five action steps to support our book, make five phone calls to radio show hosts, send out five free books to people that might tell other people about it, send out books to reviewers. One day we sent books to the O.J. Simpson jurors in the O.J. Simpson trial. And, you know, we just did anything we could think of. And that day, a couple of days later, we got a letter from Judge Ito, who was the judge, saying thank you for the books. No one ever thinks of the jurors because they were sequestered. They weren't allowed to read magazines and uh, newspapers because it would affect their view of the trial. And a couple of days later, all the jurors are walking into court holding our book. It became a national news story. I love that. <laughs> that you know, I, so, I did not know that. Yeah, well, here's another one. One day, there's a, a ship called the USS Cole, and it was in the Gulf uh, over in the Middle East, and it was attacked uh, by these Yemenis who kind of blew up a big hole in the boat. And so they had to drag the boat back to uh, Newport News in Virginia, and uh, I think that's where it is, and basically, uh, you know, fix the boat. And so... We had a book that had just come out called Chicken Soup for the Unsinkable Soul, which was all about, you know, never giving up. And so we sent all the wives of the sailors this book. And so when the, when, when the sailors are getting off the boat, there's this picture, which is on the front page of the USA Today, which you can't even buy an ad, probably cost you half a million dollars, of this woman hugging her sailor. And she's got the book, Chicken Soup for the Unsinkable Soul. Totally, you can see the whole title of the whole book. And, you know, that was just one of those things we did and it worked out. We teach something called the law of probabilities, which says the more things you do, the more likely one of them will work. So you've got to try a lot of different things. And most people give up after a few and don't keep going. Well, I think, I think that's very true and that's really important. Like a lot of people have, you know, they do uh, college, you know, job, married, children. So let's say you're, you're sitting in your cubicle right now. You're listening to this. You have three kids. You have a mortgage. And you're just scared to kind of like break out of that box and find something you really want to do and, and reach out and do. What, what advice would you have for that person? Well, fear is always going to kill you. So basically, you, you have to let your dream and your desire to be extraordinary rather than sitting in resignation in your cubicle or your job or wherever you might find yourself. And, you know, it's only the willingness to do something different. Uh, you know, it's only the actions you take and the choices you make today that are going to make your life different in the future. If you keep on doing what you've always done, you're going to keep on getting what you've always got. So if you stay in that dead-end job, you're going to keep having those feelings of dead-endness. So you've got to be willing to do something different. And uh, the fear that it won't work, you know, all the fu future is uncertain. That's just the way it is. Like you mentioned that earlier, the uncertainty is just part of the universe. We spend so much time trying to protect ourselves from the future instead of creating the future we want. Uh, Bob Proctor, who was in The Secret, who's a great motivational speaker, does this wonderful little demonstration where he kind of walks across the stage kind of like all hunched down with his hands up thinking like you look like, you know, like you're trying to escape something bad happening. And he crawls across the stage almost. And then he says, most people spend their life just trying to get to death without anything bad happening. That's a terrible strategy That's for life. True. You want to get you want to get to the end and be totally burned out because you've done a million things that were so cool. And so I recommend someone make a list of 100 things you want to achieve, accomplish, do, be, and see before you die, often called your bucket list. We call it 101 goals list before that movie ever came out. And then every year, figure out what do I want to do. So if it's start a business, you know, 
go back to school, maybe get an MBA at night, maybe get take an entrepreneur's course, maybe just take a, a boot camp weekend, summer week, whatever, and, and starting your own business, uh, go online, learn about internet marketing, you know, like start building skills that will take you in the direction you want to go. We have a story in the book about a guy who wanted to uh, not graduate uh, medical school with uh, debt. And so his wife got pregnant. He didn't want her to have to keep working. So here he was in medical school spending money, not making money. So he took a weekend, took an internet marketing class, went out and found a product called Rapid Cup, which is basically you have your teenage kids pee into a cup. You put this little uh, piece of paper and it tells them if they've been smoking marijuana, drinking alcohol, or any other drugs like cocaine or whatever. And he started marketing that online. He graduates from medical school, a millionaire, making you know close to a million a year off this little part-time job he's doing while he's in medical school, just basically having a almost self-run website. That's so, great. So, so he wasn't carrying any inventory. He was just advertising the product, putting putting maybe a, a landing page with a story, and then essentially drop shipping with the guy who made the product. Absolutely correct. Interesting. This is an, a key skill, actually, for this for this generation. It really is. I think anyone that doesn't know about internet marketing, about how to use social media correctly, about how to uh, be able to market stuff, like you said, not have to carry the inventory. I mean, if you look at all the MLMs now, all the network marketing companies, used to be you had a garage full of product you had to sell. Now, because of the internet, you don't have to have a garage full of product. You just have to have a website. Uh, which the internet marketing company will provide you with. You have to have a computer and then the ability to talk to your friends, have them go to the website and buy the product. And then the uh, law of, uh, you know, compound interest in a sense takes over. This uh, chain letter effect, if you will, uh, starts to occur. I mean, I, I here I am. I'm a multimillionaire. I belong to two multi-level marketing companies and I'm getting checks every week, you know, for a couple thousand dollars for pretty much doing nothing now. I had to work in the beginning, but now I've got a, an organization under me that doesn't does most of the work. So, it's it it's it's just so silly to be stuck in a job you don't like when there's so much opportunity out there. You know, you've talked a bit about uh, book marketing, and I know for myself, uh, you know, people ask me like, so I've written books, and people ask me, well, when did you stop marketing? Um, you know, your latest book, and what they don't understand is marketing happens every day. So every day, I'm mar- this podcast is in a sense me marketing my book. And uh, even though, of course, we're talking about your book, and uh, uh, what's you're, you're building a business now, or you have been building a business to help people kind of put their books together, publish them, market them. What's advice you would give, given your you might be the best book marketer in history? What's advice you would give for people marketing their books right now in today's day and age? Well, let me give you an umbrella statement, then I'll give you some specifics. The umbrella statement would be: I got together with Bill Harrison at uh, Quantum Learning, and we put together a course called uh, Bestseller Blueprint. So if you go online and type in Bestseller Blueprint, uh, we actually have a course you can take, you know, sitting in front of your computer uh, on how to do that. So it's, it's, it's a constant changing game. And so we keep updating everything. In the old days, you had to do a lot of, uh, you know, get on the plane and go from city to city and, and do a book tour. Today, you can do a virtual book tour. I mean, I can have 10,000 people come to a website and a Google Hangout or a Maestro Conference, and I can basically do a book tour right there, talk about the book for an hour, and send them all to Amazon.com. So, again, much, much easier. And that's the, and today, being on podcasts like yours, I mean, this is about the 
by the 20th podcast I've done in the last two weeks because my, my 10th anniversary book came out two weeks ago. So today you really have to master the Internet. You have to master social media. You have to find a way, you know, um, uh, Gary Vaynerchuk, his whole, you know, uh, kind of jab, jab, right hook idea where you have to give value, give value, and then you can talk about your book and sell. So, you know, 90% of this call, we're giving people real value, real, but at the same time, we're promoting my book. You're promoting yourself and your brand and your book in, a, in an indirect way. So you have to find a way now in a world that's gotten used to free, free YouTube videos, free downloads, free everything, to give people enough free stuff that they're willing to listen when you actually talk about things you'd like to sell them. You have to develop a relationship of trust with people. Uh, you have to build, develop a brand over time. Today, you can self-publish your book as a Kindle book, an e-book. That wasn't available to people long ago. And if you sell a Kindle book for 90 cents and you can get 500,000 people to buy it over the course of a year, you've earned a half a million dollars. And there are a number of people actually doing that. But they're constantly doing podcasts. They're constantly uh, doing uh, blogs. The blogosphere is crucial today. Um, so it's, it's really how many impressions can you make with how many people over time so they know that they trust you, that you have something worth saying, that it's valuable to you, and that they're eventually willing to spend a dollar to $15 to four or $5,000 for a home study course. Uh, like we just developed a home study course to train trainers to teach the success principles. One of our goals, James, we want to have a million people teaching these principles either in schools, corporations, nonprofits, churches, temples, synagogues, etc. by the year 2030. And so we now have recorded, you know, two years of live trainings and edited that down into a home study program. So again, the internet being the leverage, we can reach people now in the Sudan, in uh, Liberia, in South Africa, Malaysia, whatever, where they just could never afford to come do a live training with us. So basically, it's a it's a changing game. A lot of things that used to work many years ago don't work anymore, and so you have to keep keep keeping up and listening to the people like you and I talk about what's working now. You know, it's really interesting because I, I saw that you were going on uh, a few podcasts, and I was eager, of course, to have you on on my podcast. But it really occurred to me because Tony Robbins did this also when when Money came out a few months ago. It really seems to me now that the podcast tour has replaced. The, the book tour. You reach many more people and you get to sit at home. Yeah, it's very easy. I mean, right now I'm actually dressed, but I did a couple podcasts this morning at 6 o'clock in my pajamas and nobody knew because it was audio. And you, you hey, know, I'm it, in my it, pajamas. Well, very good. Very good. And so, you know, we're in an age now where you save a lot of money. I mean, it used to cost thousands of dollars to fly around the country, rent a hotel room. You know, it, it's much easier now. And even video, you know, you can go on a video tour uh, with the, you just have a little camera in your computer like most of them have now. And you can be on CNN on Skype, you know, so everything's changing. But the main thing I would say to any author uh, is build up relationships now with people. Uh, Tim Ferriss, who I mentored when he came out with his four-hour workweek book, he asked me to mentor him because uh, he wanted that. And, and he really went into the blogosphere. That's what got him on the bestseller list was he spent a year before his book came out going to the blogging conferences, uh, forwarding other people's blogs, uh, tweeting about their blogs, really becoming friends with the bloggers. So by the time his book came out, pretty much everyone in the blogosphere was willing to support him because uh, he had supported them. 
Yeah, that that is a great story. I mean, Tim is a friend of mine. He, he's been on my podcast. I've been on his podcast. Uh, he has done a remarkable job uh, creating a brand for his his four hour books and 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 whatever comes next. So so I I didn't know actually that you had mentored him. Um, that that's really great. So so Jack, in, in a sense, uh, this this podcast and I always use this podcast as kind of a a uh, way for me to gain uh, virtual mentorship. Like the podcast is the great a great way for me to just call up whoever I want to call up and say I want to talk to you for fifty or sixty minutes in front of a hundred thousand people. And otherwise, I probably would never get a chance to talk to people like you or, or everybody else I've spoken to. So I'm always very grateful for for these new technologies. Well, it's true. It's true. Today, you know, and I remember back when I used to do video interviews and I got to hang out with all the great leaders for the same reason, because I was exposing them to my audience of several hundred thousand people now, a million people, you know, on our mailing list. But the idea is you actually become somebody when you interview other people. It's kind of success by association. Let me just tell people how to get a copy of my book, if I may, real quick. Sure. If, if you go to... You can obviously go to Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com and buy the book. and encourage you to do that. But if you want to get $100 worth of free downloads from me, I have a, a one-hour audio program, a one-hour video on uh, how to set goals and achieve them. We have a, a daily disciplines for success poster. The first two chapters of the book will be delivered to you digitally the moment you order the book. So you don't have to wait for it to come from Amazon or a bookstore. And my co-author, Janet Schweitzer, has an instant income business planner. She's a, she wrote a book called Instant Income. And she, if you're an entrepreneur, uh, you'll get that as well. And just go to the, successprinciplesbook.com thesuccessprinciplesbook.com and you can download those uh, free gifts as well as get the book and think about this it's a $15 investment and the promise I'll make to you if you buy the book and it doesn't do what you want to do for you all you have to do is you don't even have to send me the book back just send me a letter saying it didn't work and I will send you a check for $15 so that's how confident I am about the, how much this book will transform your life because it's now transformed over a million lives around the world we know it works all you have to do is make a choice to take your life to the next level nothing to risk that, that's great Jack and again thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast I know what the next thing I'm going to do is your suggestion of writing down a hundred things I want to try before I die. So I'm going to do that exercise for myself today. So, so thank you also for that suggestion. Very good. That's great. Good for you. And I, again, I enjoyed the book. It's, it's helped me considerably. I recommend people get this 10th anniversary edition and, and good luck going, going forward with this. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity to be on your podcast. Thanks a lot. Thanks Jack. Bye. Okay. Take care. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today.
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.